0: Are you a leader in customer success, pre-sales, professional services, support? Do you work behind the scenes and roll up your sleeves to make sure that customers are happy? Renew. Then this is for you. Welcome to the GSD Podcast. Welcome to the GSD Podcast. Getting it done. Services, success, and software. We'll talk with the pros that have been in the trenches. Getting service teams off the ground. Launching new types of groups to service customers. Or running agencies that don't have a product attached to it. For the pros, by the pros. This is, this is the GSD, GSD Podcast. Podcast. And this is your, your host, host, Jeff Kush- Kushmerick.
1: Hey there, it's Jeff uh, from Getting Services Done Podcast. Got my next episode coming up here. One of the great things about starting this uh, podcast is I've heard from a lot of people that I hadn't chatted with in a while. We've all been super busy with our families and our careers. And uh, Bill Whitebone, we were project managers together at... Uh, in Decca, I believe I hadn't really talked or seen him since I think 2006 or seven. I, I feel like I bumped into him in the hallways of, of VistaPrint one time. But, um, anyways, we, we got together for lunch one time or coffee, and we just started, you know, shooting the shit and going over stuff. And suddenly, I was like, "Crap! I really wish I had brought in a microphone and recorded some of this." Uh, so we got back together. Last week, and we went over really just a lot of stuff. Bill's done some great things. He was obviously in professional services, went to do some uh, actual physical product stuff at Vistaprint and some other places, and is able to give that sort of product and professional services perspective. And now he's uh, often consulting. He also led a, a large group of people over at Acquia. Uh, they used a lot of partners to do a delivery in their work. So he's got some good perspective on partners and using offshore components. And just all in all, a, a great recording with a, with a great guy. So it was, it was a blast to do. I hope you enjoy. I will try and get my show notes out there. I, the reason why this is a little later is that I had sent this over to somebody on Fiverr that I had found, and then uh, he couldn't complete it because he had, I guess, college exams. So I just wanted to get this out there, but uh, I'll get some show notes up on Medium soon. Uh, so uh, feel free to fire any questions in, and thanks a lot. All right, so we are recording. Uh, this is Jeff Krishmarek, and I'm here with the Bill Whitebone, which is one of the great things I found from when I started this podcast out is that I've gotten to chat with a lot of people that I hadn't talked to in a while, and Bill had reached out to me, and, and I swear to God, we hadn't talked to each other <laughs> 2008, 2008, <Exactly. laughs> which, which is great. Um, and then we got together for a cup of coffee, and I was like, Jesus, why did not I <laughs> <laughs> microphone, But but then I was like, well, we got into some stuff that we probably wouldn't <laughs> want to get rid of. Well, just nothing bad. It's just names and, you know, like, hey, what's going on with this guy and stuff that's total inside baseball that, that people probably don't want to hear and everything. Um, so, Bill, uh, I have lots of stuff to, to chat about. I'll try and keep it under the hour. Um, but why don't you tell me? So, first things, I would, I forgot even what you did before we worked together at Indeca. We are both project managers, and I feel like there was a point in time we were actually sitting next to each other. <laughs> if yep. that's a memory, it's hard because, you know, we moved offices and things like that. So
2: Yeah, no, I do remember that myself. Yeah, so before I got to Indeca, I was actually at Digitas. Uh, so right. was, yeah, so I was at Digitas for about four years, and uh, I really, it's an interesting story actually how I ended up at Digitas. I was at the MathWorks, so I was doing oh, web development at Mathworks. MathWorks. My brother was at the
1: MathWorks. That's I was
2: there briefly, so it was it was it was the hot time, right? So that everybody was uh, was looking for that next opportunity. Yeah. So I was at the MathWorks for six months, and Digitas approached me and said, "Hey." How about we give you 50% more compensation and you come over here and, uh, and do some project management, not just do uh, development.
1: So, <laughs> so that's, that's good. Getting paid more money is a good thing? Or? It's, it
2: worked out well. Yeah, it was definitely, <laughs> definitely something that was of interest to me. Uh,
1: you know what? Now that you've said the Digitas thing, um, I now remember that because there was a point in time where people were like, we need real project management. <laughs> Like, exactly. I'm like wow we're getting some real legit people in here like, like I'll, I'll just step over here for now so. yep,
2: yep, absolutely and, and what they said to me I, I, at the time I was purely developing and I they said you can be 50% developer 50% project manager yep. and from day one I never did another line of code uh, oh, pure project management from day one and, that, and that's what I did uh, which I'm, I'm happy about I'm, I'm glad yeah. Uh, the way things have progressed and it was uh, it was a good start as far as project management for me so that's that's where I was before so working with big clients like uh, FedEx I uh, worked with Boeing worked. With uh, yeah, um, so some really interesting projects uh, And then ended up uh, moving over to Indeca was looking for something smaller And actually did a little bit of consulting in between which was interesting too. Oh,
1: yeah. I, So uh, and just so if people aren't familiar so Indeca where Bill and I worked we basically were Uh, on the uh, professional services team for a product company. At the time, the product, um, no SaaS model, nobody even knew what that was. It was basically you're deploying a server somewhere and then building up a user interface on it. And it's also you know, the, the thing that drives their whole customer experience um so my question to you actually from people coming from an agency background into that what were the sort of the big shifts that you noticed from there
2: yeah so something that i really realized at digitas uh, was that when you're working at an agency you know everything right so that's that that's the way you approach everything that's you're, you're looking for whatever work comes your way and you'll make it happen and there was a lot of Making it happen uh, so we there was instances where there was products that we had never used that I would go get trained after we just after we
1: sold the deal uh, right? Oh, so, oh, right so interesting like, so right like oh, go learn Sitecore or something like that exactly yeah. exactly,
2: yeah, so it's, there were multiple instances that that, that happened uh, so i I would become the expert as I was doing the work. Uh, so
1: <laughs> customers never knowing that
2: right right yeah yeah always always been working with this i've always been an expert with it it's well worth what you're paying
1: (laughs) (laughs) don't 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 hire one of your people to learn it pay us so i can go learn it and charge (laughs) you. absolutely absolutely
2: (laughs) Yeah. So, so being at Indeca, it was, it was very different, right? That we, we were the experts. We actually worked only in this product right. and we knew it inside and out. Right. So that, that was something that was really different for me was to have that, that focus on one product, be doing the same thing on a day-to-day basis too. That, yeah. that was, I, I felt like I was, I was the classic, uh, the, the classic person who had lots of experience, broad experience, um, but didn't have the, the depth of experience while I was in the agency world. Right. Uh, and then moving over, I, I did know the product inside and out, the people I worked with all new details, amazing details about it. So yeah. I, I really liked that
1: and it, it was a, a distinctly different experience. Yeah, you, you mentioned that expertise. I forgot about that because we kind of had to be, we had to we, the hats we wore were um, project management, uh, business ana- analysis, uh, I think account management and customer success, because there was none of that, right? It was yeah. just basically you got an account and you ran it, and you occasionally heard from the salesperson uh, when it was getting close to renewal, if everything was okay. Exactly, you
2: know, exactly. Yeah. exactly. That, those are the old days of customer success before customer success was called what it is now, right? So yeah. It's, it was from inception to ongoing support that, that right. we, were, we, you know, we it, were representing for the for INDECA.
1: And you came on, and if I remember, uh, and I believe it was a credit card company, but it was, like, you were sort of, you were sort of program managing a whole bunch of things. Am I correct on that one? Like, you had this really big customer that you kind of had uh, as well, or I'm talking right. about American Express, I believe. Was that yours, or? Am I- American
2: Express was mine at, when I was at Digitas, I was working at American Oh, right, okay. Yeah, yeah, so I did not in Dan uh, I Deca. I had a whole breadth of different, uh, clients when I was in Indeca, which was, was really interesting. You know, they, they ran from very large to, to very small. I remember one was a huge, uh, huge timeshare company, uh, or timeshare, uh, rental company. Uh, that, that was, that was a really challenging one. Actually the most interesting one for me was AutoZone. Um, so yeah.
1: Oh my God. Yeah, that's right. I forgot about that.
2: I'm a car guy, so AutoZone yeah. was my dream, but I, I ran into things uh, concerning vehicles that I had never s- uh, seen as challenges. The hierarchy of vehicles is one of the most challenging things in the world, I think. Oh, my God. Uh, the number of well. variations in vehicles was such a challenge for us to implement
1: yeah there we you know we we were a big pipeline back into the product because we're out there trying to implement it and it's like look this is real world these these are the categories that they have and we have to make it work right exactly exactly it's funny you said that but for some bizarre reason i was always getting put on these adult product product projects i don't know why you never got those
2: (laughs) i do remember that one i've told that story to this day Who wants to work on this? Uh, this is the uh, the gist of what it is in the going, dark room. Yes. Exactly, exactly, closed door.
1: <laughs> oh man! And then the funny, the word to top that one off. When I was at Brightco, um we signed up. Um, Playboy as a customer, and uh, I had no male project managers. Uh, so, <laughs> but why I had this one awesome uh, female, she's like, I'll take it. They're, they'll be fun to hang out with. I was like, oh my God. And then everybody's like, You did what? I'm like, Listen, you gotta, you know, it's okay. you gotta do what you gotta do. <laughs> so, so walk me through after, I believe, is that when you went to go work for a product company after that? Um, was that when you went over to Vistaprint? Yes. After yeah.
2: Yeah, so yeah, I went over to Vistaprint. Uh, Vistaprint was, uh, was really different for me. I, uh, I started there as a program manager, and the first program that I managed was actually a physical product. So I, I had never in my career created a physical product. Uh, so it was, everything was digital. So they told me that they wanted to start making customized mugs. Uh, so not only was it a, a hard product, for me, that I was producing, but it actually was the first FDA-controlled product that they were they were putting out. Mugs were FDA controlled. Yeah, so because they, they they actually touch your mouth, uh, you need to make oh, sure that they, that that product doesn't have any contaminants in it that would be bad for you. That's uh, crazy. I, you know, it's funny you bring that up. I just just yesterday
1: was, you know, I was, like, starving, and I, you know, like, ran into, like, Whole Foods, and I grabbed, like, those Justin Almond butter packets or whatever, yeah. and I just, like, rip it open and squeeze it, you know, and suck it down. I'm, like, you're, like, this is so disgusting. Like, somebody else probably had it in their hands and said, screw it, and then I pick it up and buy it, and just, oh, God. So, exactly. I can see where the FDA complies comply. So, I want to touch on one of my favorite themes uh, and see if it's valid or if I just, I'm a jerk. And uh, <laughs> the truth is always somewhere in the middle. But, you know, we had some pretty hard, like just real hard driving workers, I believe, and Deco. We were all had that unified goal. And then I found when I then work with product-only teams that there's a little bit of a different work mentality uh and did you do you bump into that when you were, started working at Vistaprint with a physical product and not having this client deadline that was sort of like a, a bullet to your head and stuff like that or
2: yeah it, it was different so if I the things that were similar is and the key to any place that I've worked and wanted to work has been working with really smart and dedicated people so that was something that was really appealing to me about the Vistaprint team as I got to mm-hmm. know them uh so that that was the same. Uh but when I when I look at the the level of dedication in general, uh being at a small company like Indeca, where you know we were very early on, you yeah. had a different connection to it, right? So at Vistaprint, very dedicated people dedicated people, lots of great work. I think it's a great company, but a different feel because of the scale of it when I joined. So mm-hmm. Indeca, I just felt like was it was different in that we all had that common goal of growing this as quickly as we possibly could. Whereas I felt like VistaPrint was in a place of excellence, right? So right. the point of wanting to create absolute excellence, uh, and in a decade was more. This, when we were there, it was more scrappy, yeah. really get it done, move things as quickly as we possibly can, and put out a, high, a very high quality product. Yeah. Uh, so it is it different, different mentality, different stage of, of company, and it took some. It took some getting used to for me. So I, I it felt like it, you, you touched on. It, it felt like a different pace, essentially. Yeah, and a lot of what had to happen. Uh, was me motivating myself more than the, the just all around insanity yeah. motivating me
1: but yeah like sometimes it, it's okay not to have like your world just on fire every day <laughs> like <laughs> me get this out and I've got three other projects and they're all like let's go let's go let's go it's I'm now as a you're probably the fourth or fifth person I've talked about this with I'm realizing that I'm perhaps the problem <laughs> <laughs> nice <laughs> <laughs> oh my god okay I'll meditate on that one so <laughs> so that was so you were there for how long because i you i want to start getting into the really large scale stuff that we talked about because uh i'm i'm over my skis where you sort of went in terms of experience with really big teams and things like that so i want to start right. so i was
2: i was at Vistaprint until 2011 so i was there for uh, four yeah. years yeah uh so yeah and kind of like Another interesting thing that just to to touch on is that I did that physical product and then I ended up back in my realm uh, while I was there in that I went to strategic partnerships. Uh, Oh, right. That's right. Yeah, it was focused on implementing third-party, uh, third-party options, third-party products on the Vistaprint site, and then also offering the Vistaprint site in different ways. So uh, white-labeled for Staples, uh, white-labeled for FedEx Office. So I ended up getting back into essentially consulting, right? So right. leading
1: a team that was very similar. Well, and it's funny you touched on it, but um, I actually really haven't discussed this that much so far, which is one of the things that we wind up doing at product companies. In and I don't think as much as with service companies, but but basically, there's a point in time where you're not supposed to grow your services team anymore, uh, and you need to start finding strategic partners. Uh, to, to implement a lot of the work. Uh, there's just certain things with evaluations of companies that they don't want you having this massive services team because then it looks like a really difficult and complicated thing to deploy, um, which in tech it was. But we still need it to ha- – there's also another thing where if you start bringing on um, – strategic partners like you're talking about they can they can sell into their customers as well like the example like we would never sell into coca-cola but accenture would so let's get accenture ramped up on on this and that but uh i really right. like working with the, the small regional providers uh and, and, I, and i don't know if you sort of had, had any thoughts on that because i know you worked with them a lot when we were in But i don't know if that happened with vistaprint at all
2: uh, so actually, that'd be a good segue into Acquia. So Acquia, oh, yeah, yeah. That's, right. that's where it was, that was what it was all about for me. And that, that was okay. a, a big change in that Acquia's focus was really on building the Drupal, the overall Drupal ecosystem. Yeah. So in order to build that ecosystem, they needed to to have lots of folks deeply involved and they wanted to get more and more, which meant that. From a services perspective, we didn't want to build a big services team. We actually wanted to build a services team that leveraged third parties to empower those third parties to be out evangelizing and and actually growing Drupal in general. So I only had engagement managers, so very very senior project managers and technical architects on my team. Oh, okay. Um, Actually, the employ the actual employees, uh, and then we use third parties to do the majority of our delivery, are, I'd say, yeah, I'd say all of our delivery, essentially,
1: other than wow. the, the top leadership. Uh, well, let's, let's dive into that a little bit because I, I hadn't realized that. I, um, how did you manage, because I've, I've dealt, certainly dealt with the sort of split projects and stuff like that, but how did you keep those partners on track? Uh, obviously you had some high level engagement managers there, but uh I'm just wondering, let's talk about like, you know, five minutes, like the life cycle of one of those projects and making sure that these outside developers were delivering the quality and doing all the things that you needed them to do.
2: Sure. Yes. It, a really important part of leveraging third parties effectively is getting them involved early. Yeah. So making sure that they're part of the estimation process. So generally what we would do is we would we would engage with the client. Uh, we'd get the relationship going with the client. We'd get the initial requirements. And then we would decide what partner would be the best based on what the need was of that that particular client. Uh, So at that point, we'd bring the partner and have them estimate uh, and also connect directly with the client if, if needed. We'd be a part of all those conversations, but connect directly to get more details. Uh, so they would actually come up with an estimate. We'd compare our estimate to their estimate, and some usually end up in the middle somewhere. Whose uh, paper? Whose paper was it on? It was on our paper. Okay. Yes, yeah, so so you own the exactly. responsibility. Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. So they would contract with us, and then we were always contracted with the client. Uh, so from there, the delivery process uh, would be overseen by my engagement manager and by my technical architect. Yeah. Uh, but the day-to-day delivery was being managed by a project manager on the other
1: side. Okay, so they were setting up sort of a good relationship with, between the engagement manager and the project manager. And this is this is a little, for everybody listening, like, this is before the days of like daily stand-ups and Slack and HipChat and everything else, so it's a little bit of, I don't know, I just used to always lose my mind on these projects. But, uh, you know, because you just, <laughs> are they working? You're like, <laughs> how's the delivery going? Or, you, know, you, just, you just I never had a good feel for them, so
2: yeah exactly we we didn't you're right we didn't have that direct immediate connect uh, connection consistently so it was really setting up regular calls you know, so then the calls weren't on, of daily frequency necessarily but they were at least a couple times a week yeah. um hitting on the, the right or most important details of, of progress uh, but <laughs> you and i actually discussed this briefly when we uh, we met we met up but I'll give you an example of when things don't work.
1: Uh, <laughs> no, it's perfect because you learn so much more when, you know, everything just blows up in front of you. Like, oh, let's not do that again. <laughs>
2: absolutely, absolutely. So one of the most challenging projects, clients that I worked with uh, at Acquio was definitely NBC Sports in um, doing the Olympics. Uh, so we did uh, yes, this website right. for NBC Sports. Uh, Great, great group, uh, but under a lot of stress, right? So we're yeah. talking about so much money that is dependent on this site being fully functional and being full, fully functional on the date that it needs to be and consistently up. Yeah. So they, they really wanted to make sure that we were hitting deadlines and, and that we were, we were on the right track. So we we ended up in a situation where the third party that was implementing started to fall behind. They, of course, started to fall behind when the biggest convention for Drupal uh, of the year was happening. So I was at DrupalCon in Denver, and so was the third party that was supposed to do the delivery. And I had some conversations around, we need to speed this up. We need to get going on this right now. And my client was at DrupalCon. My CEO was at DrupalCon. Uh, So really easy to get us all in a room. And we did all get into a room. uh, And it was a highly stressful meeting. Uh, So I was under a lot of pressure and so I started to put that pressure or additional pressure onto the third party and they told me that they were a lifestyle business uh, and that one of the things that was really important to them was to be able to spend time at this convention and focus on the convention. Mm -hmm. Uh, So not the answer I necessarily wanted to hear at the time uh so that's the kind of thing that you run into though when you're working with third parties you don't know what the culture of their organization is right and that culture was very different from the culture that i was working in and the culture of my client uh, so it it got done we we were 100 percent successful uh, but only because we switched out to another another company to, to take oh care. you did switch out i didn't realize that i was
1: i, I we didn't cover that when we chatted yeah wow that must have been I think I'm, I think you're growing hives right now. Just telling me the story right now. We're <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Oh. Yeah, no, it
2: was, uh, it was a, one of the more challenging times in my, my career for sure. And, uh, oh. and it worked out, but we found a th- another third party delivery company that was very, very capable, uh, and came in quickly and, and got the work done at high quality.
1: Yeah. I, listen, I'm all about lifestyle, but you know, Sometimes you got to get the job. <laughs> you know it's terrible, especially when you're a project manager and your like team is sitting with you. And I'm like, oh, you guys are going out to lunch? I'll get you lunch. I'll bring lunch. Like you don't want anything to distract you when exactly. you have one of those. Unfortunately, like this is the deadline. There's nothing you can do about it. It's right. You know, it's nice to be able to say, well, you know, we haven't gathered requirements and we can't go forward with a deadline. But there's a certain point in time where your company makes a decision, like in order to get this deal, we're going to have to oh run it hot i say it with quotes on and then you get a partner and they don't run it hot so yeah
2: yeah and i had no backstop right i didn't yeah. i had no i had my tech architects right but they didn't have capacity because they had so many projects they were managing simultaneously yeah so really i had no backstop and that was that was one of the biggest challenges that the only way to protect yourself was to bring another third party in and get them ramped quickly if, if one wasn't working out so that happened didn't happen frequently, but it did happen several times. And, and that's, a, that's a really tough position to be in because you're having to ramp a new team quickly. You're having to tell another team to take a hike uh, and also tell them you're not going to pay them uh, for any, any additional work. And maybe some of the work they've already done because it wasn't of high quality or, right. or
1: it wasn't delivered on time. Uh, did so, did tough you problem. have, oh, sorry. Did you have a um, sort of, was there like a partner guy or person that was sort of creating these relationships? Or were you out there finding them for yourself?
2: So the partner group started to grow as probably year two uh, when I was there, the partner group started to grow. So when I started, it was really project managers were, as we talked about earlier, they were like in Deca, they were responsible for everything. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and really I, and then it rolled up to me as far as the longer term relationships. Uh, but yeah, partners, be, partnerships became very important at that point, um, really focusing on going larger scale too. So instead of working just with these, open source shops that was focused on starting to grow into to bigger consulting, right? And bigger consulting yeah. was seen as being able to bring more opportunities. Um, was that the reality? Not necessarily, um, but I saw that it was the right
1: trajectory definitely, Right. more partnerships. And, What's, and we're gonna talk about this for a while. There's a bunch of topics here. Yeah. One of them I'm curious, how big was your team there underneath you at that time? Uh, So
2: my team at max was about a hundred people.
1: Yeah, that's a good size. What sort of management structure do you have in place in terms of like tiered or, you know, like how many, what's your philosophy on how many direct reports a manager should have? First of all,
2: my view is, I mean, it really depends on what you're doing on a day-to-day basis, but I I usually stick by 10 to 12 is the, the max uh, I'd rather see somewhere around eight if you're going to be effective. And it really depends on what you're trying to do too. So yeah. if you look at a project manager or a program manager that's managing project managers, uh, you you probably want to uh, focus more on the junior folks, right? And if you have a very yeah. junior team, you're going to want less numbers. And that, that's what I'm kind of looking at. What are we trying to accomplish here? Are we maintaining some senior people and trying to grow them as we can uh, right. or are we really trying to grow some junior people really quickly uh and it's, it
1: really depends yeah i think with the 10 to 12 I, I think at that point in time you need a bunch of senior people like right? with those for me like i'm sort of more in the six to eight tops camps uh uh but you know, I've been in these these roles where you're hiring some more junior people and bringing them on board, so you got to kind of give them a little bit more, like you know, not just the one-on-ones. You've got people walking into your office like, "Hey, can I bounce something off of you?" and and all that stuff. But absolutely. Uh, but I, you guys were growing to a big size at that point in time, so you could probably bring in some more senior people, and you know, you can say here's a chunk of work. And then maybe I'm guessing have like a couple junior people that you can then work on bringing up. So
2: yeah, that's really been my strategy ongoing is is to start to build a team with very senior people. And then as you see, you have some capacity, then start to bring the more junior folks in. And sometimes you may start to go towards the more junior folks more quickly because you're looking at margins and margins need to, to right. So that's sometimes that, but Having capacity to, one, support, and two, grow junior people is, re- is really important, so you need to do it at the
1: right time. Actually, this just made me think of a topic, because you know you always hear from, from the upper management, they're like, oh, well, we have all these smaller customers, right? Right. <laughs> Please tell the audience why that's always a disaster. <laughs> Let's put the most junior person on the cheap of projects. <laughs>
2: Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, you and I both know, and probably many people listening to this know that your most challenging clients are your smallest clients.
1: (laughs) Wait, they're only paying us 30K. Just put the 70K project manager on. That makes total sense.
2: Because they'll nail that budget. They will nail that budget. (laughs) Yeah, I've I've seen that many times. But yeah, we, we know that. I mean, that's Again, customer success. You talk about customer success, and that that's yeah. an from every customer success person. That the the clients that are using the the majority of their time are those small clients.
1: Oh yeah, they just. It, it's nothing against the small. It's not even the contract value. It's more. It's just this usual indicator that they're just not used to these types of things. So they don't have the structure in place. And they're never meeting their deadlines that you're asking. It just turns into a shit show. It's just, I, it's right. every time. And, but you feel for them, you know, it, it, and it, it's just a really bad thing to put junior people on those, those smaller clients. Um, or maybe one, but not all of them. Because that was the other thing, like, that you always hear is that, oh, they'll take all the smaller ones. Any revenue under 40K or whatever. Um, you know, they'll have all of these ones or whatever. And it's just, it just doesn't work. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah. So um, that's cool. So th- that that sort of touches on that. Any any other things on the, on the big scale, like um, what you started seeing? I know you had the digitized background, so you're probably a little bit more used to it. But when you started getting up like over fifty, over sixty, I think that's where some people start seeing some like, oh, what I used to do doesn't really kind of work as much here. Any changes that you had to adjust to when you started getting into these? you know groups of 100 or so.
2: Yes, it was a significant transition in in really starting to to find ways to be able to trust people more than to be involved in everything on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. So, and that's hard, right? Especially in the services industry, yeah. there's so many moving parts that it's easier to to verify yourself than necessarily rely on others and, uh, you know, keep yourself involved enough that you, you're looking at those key things. Yeah. But yeah, once you get up to that larger scale, it, it is very hard to, to keep yourself involved in the, on a day to day or even a week to week basis on some things, at, at least at the level that you would like to. Right. You can't know every single status of every single project.
1: Yeah. Right. Right. So that's, Oh, you're blowing up. That's okay. I have the same thing. every. There's not one podcast where my phone's not blowing up all the time. So. <laughs> sorry about that. That's okay. Is that a landline? I it
2: is. My wife insists on it. Oh, no. We have like a
1: like a hill right near our house and it blocks out most cell phone stuff. And so we, I still keep it on, especially to tr- just get all the telemarketers. So. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. Sorry about that. Oh, no, no, no worries. So, um, and how about the hiring processes? One of, one of those things that Mark and I worked on, you know, we like took a year off from project work was to like, we had those career paths and the hiring processes. And, you know, we had that thing where like, you're the culture person and, you know, so you just don't keep asking the same person for, you know, the same three questions every time or whatever like that. Did you wind up having any specialized hiring practices or things that you did to to, you know, spur on hiring faster or better
2: yeah that that was definitely a key and i'd say the the fastest hiring that i needed to do was when i was at ffw so our blink reaction was uh, what it was called. Oh right, okay yeah we can swing into that yeah yeah so we grew very quickly there so I, when i joined it was 35 people
1: yeah.
2: and we needed to grow uh very quickly to address really the demand that we were seeing so drupal at the time was really hot uh and it, there was Demand that we were seeing from large clients that we wanted to address. Mm -hmm. We grew actually from 35 people to about 150. Was more than 150, but 150 at core. Wow! Um, In in what time frame was that? That was in three years. We did that. That's pretty
1: fast. Yeah, Yeah. especially for a services group. It's it's like yeah,
2: right. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it was it was really necessary for us to be very really focused in our hiring and making sure that we weren't having the same people ask or different people asking the same questions multiple times and the time investment alone, yeah. and getting that many people through the pipeline and hiring that many people is, is huge. And yeah. we didn't want to be diminishing margin based on the fact that we weren't efficiently hired. Yeah.
1: You're, you're taking billable resources basically. Right. Oh, I hate to talk about it like it's a business, but right, yeah. you've, got, you've got an, you've got base, you've got percentages and you're trying to drive, hiring and decisions based on you know how much allocated work people can do and stuff so we had that thing where you know two two people into it it'll be like you know make sure you do it nicely but it's just not really the right thing to do here right like we were trying to hire like 100 people that year or something crazy like that i remembered it was like first or second interview don't waste, waste terrible word but don't waste the other two people's time if if the first two people have, have basically said this person's not gonna work here right yeah
2: exactly and that's that's a tough one
1: right so that's yeah, tough I always hate doing I, I hate being that guy boxing the room you like hey so I'm gonna walk you out to the door now it's not <laughs> right right it's, it's it, no, listen, but, I know it you know it let's be you know, absolutely I, it it is an uncomfortable
2: situation, but it's a better situation for everyone, right? So right. Yeah, I, we've, we've seen situations where where folks will bring people through a full interview process knowing 50% of the way through that, that it's not going to work. And, and yeah. you know, it, it becomes apparent no matter what. Yeah. You know? so it's the lack, lack of investment in the, the additional interviews during the day or whatever, whatever it is, it becomes apparent. Uh, yeah. So it, as tough as that conversation is, it's an important conversation to have and it's, it saves critical time. Yeah. Uh, but, but it's, you got to do it the right way. I mean, that's, that's yeah, the, it's, it's the
0: right yeah, way.
1: always tough. Cause I believe we are like, the manager lunch is part of that, and it was like, actually, we're not going out to lunch. I'm just going to walk into the elevator. I'm not going to get on the elevator, <laughs> All right? Nice. Here's five bucks. This is, no, this never happened. <laughs> <laughs> That's but a great. Believe there was the yeah. lunch because there was there. There was the we wanted to have an offer by the end of the day. Where we were competing. I mean, this is Bill and I both. Like we were we were competing against um, not only just the startups, but where we were literally down the street, Google. Microsoft, they all started moving in into, and suddenly Cool Cambridge started becoming like corporate Cambridge. And we started getting some really big companies. And we're all trying to hire these like MIT grads and all these people. So we wanted to have an offer in their hands by the time they left, maybe even get them to say yes, to, if they were the right person. You know, so why, why do you need to go through those additional two to three weeks of bullshit, right? Like the stress, like they're gonna walk out and get an offer from somebody else. And so let's if we really want this person, let's just give them an offer that day, which is, I, I love when they came up with it. Not my idea, but I love when they came up with that because um, you know, we, we all wish hiring processes were that smooth. So.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, and that's, it's so true. I mean, the demand it consistently it, it even continues to be so high in certain yeah. roles that yes, it's, it's better for both just to, to move on and, uh, and, and get the next yeah. person rolling and let them go
1: when when you were at blink reaction was that when you started using more offshore as well too yes yeah yeah so
2: the <laughs> interesting um, story... Yeah, let's take a
1: direct like left shift <laughs> let's talk about cuz they're the same right it's like oh no now we need to be able to uh, tell the reasons why instead of me just you know suggesting them but uh, why yeah. you sort of went down that route
2: yeah and i can tell you, i'll I'll tell you how the transition happened to just to blink reaction so uh, i while at Acquia I reached a point where I really wanted to go back to the traditional delivery that I was used to right having my own team and being able to to manage that team really effectively so having the backstop again being able to see further ahead on whether projects were going to be successful those were really key things for me so I ended up Leaving Acquia and then really started looking to the Drupal community because I, I, I liked it. I, re, I really yeah. liked the Drupal community. I really liked the, the partners we worked with. So I started talking to some partners actually, and I talked to my favorite partner, uh, Blink Reaction. And Blink Reaction, by the way, is the company that saved me on the Olympics, too. Uh, oh,
1: no kidding. Oh, that's yeah. oh, I didn't realize that. That's an awesome story. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so I, I talked to them. I talked to a couple other partners. And they, they could
1: get it done, right? Like,
2: Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I trusted these guys. Absolutely. So I, I knew they yeah. had key people that really were dedicated to what they're doing and really smart uh, and had tons of Drupal experience. So it was the right time. It was the right place. Uh, so I ended up joining and... Really, our goal from when I joined was to to build a wildly successful company that we either were very happy to be a part of and wanted to continue with indefinitely or to sell right so mm-hmm. really the the things that we did and how we acted were similar with either path you know we we really didn't have a a decision on what we were going to do um, but yeah it's one of and I'll say another key different key differentiator for. Blink reaction in my decision making was the offshore piece of it. So okay. the, they're differentiated, right? So I, you look around at the agency world in general, and you see a lot of companies that are doing the same thing, and and they're they have similar rates uh, and similar approaches, just because that that that's the the, the standard path. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the offshore model gave us a lot of flexibility in in what we could do, investments we could make, and and really looking at. Eastern Europe. Eastern Europe has yep. amazing technical capabilities. Uh, so uh, there was direct connection for Blink Reaction to uh, a group in Ukraine. And oh, Ukraine. Okay, yep. they, were, they were full employees, uh, but yep. we had a manager that was focused there. And that, that's a key, actually, I'll say to anyone yep. thinking about doing offshore, make sure you have a representative
1: offshore. 100%. I actually was just talking to a, a prospect just the other day. Uh, we have an offshore component in Costa Rica. They're amazing, and uh, this company had been kind of trying to start their own office up, and but they were just kind of hiring developers. And it's like, no, you you need that person. You need that that presence. You know, that's just keeping it all together there. Yeah, yeah,
2: absolutely. Now that that was key for us really to to make sure the team was happy, to make sure that we were hiring the right people, uh, and, and just really just to keep it moving. Uh, so. We hired a lot of great people out of, uh, out of Ukraine uh, and it was a really, really effective team. Yep. And we were able to scale it quickly. And a lot, a lot of the scaling we did was just based off of friends of friends, right? So there was just such a Drupal community there that yep. we were just finding people based off of somebody saying, hey, I know some people. And, and then we did reach a point where we, we really couldn't scale as much within our, with, within our, our network uh, in mm-hmm. Ukraine. We started to branch out a little bit. Further, um, we, we brought on some, some folks in Serbia, uh, so we actually aqua-hired a, a team. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. We had some folks in Bulgaria. Uh, so we, we started uh, the- you traveling
1: like, over there? I, I picture you sitting in these like European cafes with little espressos and interviewing people. No, <laughs> so I
2: did, get, I did get over to Ukraine, but it's not that- <laughs> The picture you paint is not the picture, actually. <laughs> it was sitting, not understanding a single word of what I was looking at or hearing. Ah, uh, yes. So the language is very difficult. And again, good reason to have a representative in that country. Yeah. Uh, he, he was able to bring me around and, uh, and watch out for me. Yeah, I just watched too much
1: Jason Bourne. I apologize for that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> what was your ratio by then? Like 60% offshore, 70, 80? I'm just curious.
2: Yeah, we we varied. I, it was between 60 and 70% generally. Yeah. Uh, if we started to, to ramp up from there, we'd start to get a little bit concerned just about, uh, yeah. about margins and, and where we're at. So we were able to offer very attractive uh, rates based off of the offshore model. And, and we, want, we needed to maintain that differentiator, so we, we need to keep a close eye on it.
1: Was the project oversight, like the architects and the project management, onshore, and then the development was offshore?
2: It was, and I really see that as a key. Yeah. So communication with clients, the, it's the same time zone when it comes to project management, technical architects is important technical architects I did have some that were based offshore and, and were able to communicate communicate well um, based off the time and just English language yeah uh, that was a part of hiring too was making sure that the English skills were were good
1: yeah no, no, it's we, we deal with that now it's there's a point in time where the the customer is going to want the developers to jump on a call every once in a while so absolutely
2: absolutely yep. Yeah, and I, I did find for more junior developers, it was okay if their English wasn't quite as, their spoken English wasn't quite as good. Mm-hmm. Um, many people, their written English is much better than their spoken English as they're learning the English language.
1: Uh, yeah, of- you know what? That just, God, it's just like one of the lessons, important lessons I learned on this was very recently where we were on a conference call and the customer was there and asked questions and the developer was doing a very good job you, know, he's, he's, you know, his, his spoken English was very well. Um, but then you realize they're speaking slower. And then we went on pause uh, for a little bit, but I think the customer had to drop and we we're gonna switch over to an internal meeting. And suddenly they all started speaking in Spanish very fast and, and fluent and going back and forth and everything. And it's like, that's right. There's, that's, that's a very hard thing to do, right? You're, you're talking about technical concepts your context switching in different languages, you're doing a translation in your head and everything. It's, it's such a skill and, and then it's part of that hiring and onboarding process to what position do you put them in, how much do they talk with people, um, yeah it's uh, you know it just assumed like oh he speaks English yeah let's just get him on the phone and do X Y and Z and then suddenly the customers like that was a little rocky and you're like well you know it's not their first language and we're talking about really complex things here they're just doing a you know it's like you know ten five second delay for you know translating those in their heads so
2: right absolutely and it, it's a very uncomfortable situation for the individual that you put in that situation too yeah. right so Knowing that they're not able to communicate at the level that they want to is just it's very uncomfortable and, and I, I don't like putting people in those positions One of the things that we did was we offered English English classes. Uh, so oh, that's cool. Yeah That was something that we, we found really important and was pretty effective uh, You know, It becomes challenging in that you're moving in a million miles an hour and you're trying to offer classes and get people to have the time to do the classes So it's we need to make sure that there was a balance. Um, but yeah, that's
1: very smart. Do you mind talking about um percentage of billable time uh at a at a um straight consulting company versus a product team like i'm trying to remember the percentages in my head but uh i remember that in tech, i think we were trying try for 70 to 75 percent and yeah. I, I, so i kept those when i was at bright cove and then we had you know any of that extra allocated time to go to like oh it was a company meeting and maybe you want to do some fun stuff and everything like that a little different <laughs> when you don't have that product kind of slush fund of
2: <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's that is a key differentiator, as you say, between the between those types of companies. Yeah. My, my target was eighty percent plus. Yeah. Uh so and, and I was able to frequently get individ, you know, the individuals that were working above that. Yeah. Uh, and it, it is interesting, and when you don't have a product that's associated with the with what you're doing, there's not any of that training or any of that you need to be doing. We did have to train on the technology, but a lot of the technology training was happening while folks were actually doing implementation. So we'd put a more junior developer in partnership with a more senior developer, and, and, and have them develop co-developing basically on a yeah,
1: that's, that's smart. Yeah, I know, 100 percent on that. So in your current situation now, are you using some of the same people or teams that you used previously, or have you had to go off and sort of create a new team?
2: Yeah, so I am still, I, it's funny, I, I am working in the partnership model, right? So, yeah. uh, And I am using one team that I, I used to use uh, when I was at both uh, FFW and Acquia, so yeah. highly trusted team, and their Indian-based team. Uh, So do great work. I trust them, Uh, and then I have I also have a Ukrainian team, uh, which I've done some projects with and uh, been very successful. But it's a different team than the team I've worked with in the past.
1: Are you just living life with on a different time zone right now? Are you like Sunday night at nine o'clock getting on the phone and things? Or
2: exactly, exactly. It does (laughs) help that I do have a tech architect that's based in the U.S. Yeah, uh, but I still do end up on calls that are that are way off of the time I prefer <laughs> to be on calls
1: at. <laughs> yeah, nothing beats my old New Zealand calls; those are amazing. So, uh, like, I can't even remember what I think those are like seven o'clock on Sundays, seven o'clock at night, basically. Is, is yeah, right.
2: exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, crazy. it does take some getting used to. Uh, the as far as the Indian time time zone, I've I've never actually tried to match that one uh, very much. Uh, if, if somebody
1: had to, oh yeah, Oof. if somebody had to ask you. Uh, if somebody was saying, Hey, Bill, I'm trying to, I'm getting pitched on, on starting up a, a dev team in India or, uh, Eastern Europe. What would, what sort of questions would you ask them back in to help make that decision?
2: Uh, what is technology, right? So what technology are you trying to work in? And uh, I think there's, there's pockets of different technologies looking at different areas throughout the world. Uh, so, uh, I, my personal experience in, with off, offshore companies in general, um, I found that Eastern Europe was a little easier for me at least as far as communication. And yeah. part of that was probably time zone, right? So there was more time that I had available that overlapped with that team to, to really stay in sync. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the questions I would ask is what is your, your time, time flexibility, you know, that your working hour flexibility? Yeah. Uh, so in, we had folks that actually worked U.S. time in Eastern Europe, and they did it very, very happily because they they got to work later in the day. So early, early yeah. in the day, they they got to do whatever they wanted, and then they'd start later. So the, yeah, I did, to those fancy
1: Eastern European coffee shops with the little saucers and the cups, right? <laughs>
2: Absolutely, yes. I'm you, obsessed with those. As you, you envision
1: it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so have you? Were you able? Because there's a big—I don't want to say prejudice, but there's a big impression in the field that you cannot give Indian teams agile projects is that false were you able to find some of that I mean the, the thing is if you give something incredibly specked and well thought out um, or more support roles what I've found is they're, it, those teams are great for that but I've never I, I've not been able to find a, a, a great agile working relationship with with an Indian team
2: the way that I have made it successful is with the good amount of U S support. Right. So having the, the, onshore offshore, having the onshore project leadership uh, has, has made a difference. Right. So I think that
1: just sort of given the whole project over to to India, you sort of have a blended company. Exactly. Project. Okay.
2: Exactly. Yeah. 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 So I, I think that, the there's many many technical resources in india i feel like project management doesn't have there's not as much of a focus on project management Mm -hmm. Um, that's my impression that i think
1: you're that's probably what the issues that i've dealt with are is that yeah
2: so i it's structuring it in that you have u.s leadership from a technical technical and from a project uh perspective And then having the delivery team in India that with the right communication, those people having to work off off hours, you know, the leadership definitely has to work off hours um, to stay in communication. But I've seen it be very successful that my my partner, my Indian based partner uh, does excellent, excellent work, agile projects. uh, And but that's because we have the right structure in place to be able to do that.
1: Yeah, it, it sounds like if anything, if you put your your due diligence in and find the right teams, and I just could not like go fly over to India and try and meet with like five different companies and go through all of that. It was sort of just didn't have those those in place. Um, and we had been dealing with some customers where it was a blended project. You know, our team and their team and their team was in India, and it just it just didn't really work out that well. We'd have those crossovers right eight o'clock in the morning we'd have the, the exactly. soil, can you go take this and you know pass the baton for the, you know, so. right
2: yeah and there's so many stories out there like that right it's just you you, yeah. hear, you definitely hear it a lot and even you hear it about eastern europe too it's just it, it really really comes down to how you structure your team, how you assess your team, how and what level of commitment they have. Yeah. Having, a, having a team that is onshore offshore versus having a full onshore team, there's, there's considerations that are for both that you need to take into account. It's easy enough to think about an offshore team as not being part of your company or, or being different, right? So right. they just do the work over there and, and we just send them work and we've, we provide the oversight that they need. But they, this, they are part of your company. They're part of your culture. Right. You know, their culture is very different you know, when it comes to their their actual culture that they live in. But in their working environment, they're looking for many of the same things. And you need to make sure that that culture is, is across the board. And you may have to adapt it some, but it's, it's yeah. to have that common goal. Just like a, any company that's folk, that we've been at you know, in DECA, we had to have that common goal. And, and it's important to maintain that even with an
1: offshore team. Yeah, some of the things that we found successful recently is that if you're getting if you're starting off a big project, fly the team over, right? Or at least fly the leads up. Uh, yeah. Or and that seems to work really well. You know, them being with a customer, but then just feeling like they're in the culture of the company uh, where, where we've you know, flown the team over, we've done the kickoff, then we spent like another week at our offices or two, or maybe even a full sprint or two. Uh, that that's that's been something that's that's worked really well and every time we do it we should do more of it so yeah.
2: absolutely absolutely yeah. and another important piece i found too just minor but communication mechanisms are important so video and yeah. so it's interesting we talked
1: about that in the beginning all yeah. the status calls with no video and just a phone call and
2: yeah. yeah absolutely so a video makes a big difference and it's easy enough to fall into i'm not going to turn my video on because i work from home and my rooms rooms a mess, or I, I didn't I didn't take a shower this morning, whatever it might be. Um, but but I think it's important to have that video component. Yeah. So I actually
1: shaved for you. If you had seen me an hour ago, uh, you, you might have thought you were on the wrong call. So I appreciate that, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody wants to see that. <laughs> well, so I think we went pretty we went pretty deep there for a little bit. Not as deep as when I get Mark Holland on the phone. We'll talk all sorts of ops and percentages and things like that. But that was. That was that was great because I, I really wanted to get into some of the scalability and the onshore offshore things as well. Uh, any any sort of lasting thoughts or lessons or things that uh, we didn't cover off on?
2: Uh, I'd like to just touch on what I'm doing now. So just, oh yeah,
1: absolutely, yeah. Yes.
2: Uh, so I actually was really excited when I saw your podcast um, because the way you described it is what the direction that I've gone with my career at this point. So yeah. I, I identified that same gap that you talk about as, as oh, far as you. trying to get professional services information uh and and really get support when it comes to professional services and how to you know, how to build an organization, how to scale an organization, how to make decisions, how to put processes yeah. in place, all those sorts of things. So I made the decision to start my own company it's called Advanced Velocity, uh which, which is really focused in that area. So there's there's three areas I focus in. One is professional services consulting uh and and also because they go hand in hand customer success and i yeah. i have only briefly had the title of customer success uh but re- in reality my career has been based oh,
1: I, on I, I we could tell oh my god yeah there's 100% like oh you don't know customer success oh yeah you're right i i don't know anything about customer success cuz i don't have that title in my Exactly. Please. Exactly. <laughs> yes, and it's,
2: it's—I've it's, it's, had so many of those conversations. Uh. But yeah, so I am actually, I have lots of expertise in customer success and I am consulting <laughs> on both professional services and customer success and I am qualified. Uh,
1: <laughs> he is, he's actually, he's very well called. It's it's just funny, I, you know, the, there needs to be some, I was just talking with Renee and there needs to be cons, consolidation, Because I was looking through her LinkedIn, I was like, Renee, you've got like customer experience, customer success, customer, to, I don't know, like enrichment, it's just like what, what, the industry needs to kind of settle in on what's, what all of this sort of means. Exactly. Exactly. That's not an A or It's just sort of like what's flying out there these days, and what some chief talent officer wants to call something. So uh, yeah,
2: absolutely, absolutely. So yeah, I'm really happy to be working in that that space. Yeah. You know, add to that just general technology consulting, uh, working with organizations, just assess their their overall technology platform uh, and also the processes they're using there, and then using uh, the teams that I spoke about earlier to do uh, development too. So focus in what, what web development area
1: on the success, um, and I don't want to run too long, but I'm fascinated about some of this on the on the success and professional services. Who's your tar- Who's calling you up for these? Are because uh, you know I've. You get contacted by people who are like, I'm a startup founder, I know nothing about this, but I know that I need it. Uh, Or what what sort of are those people that are sort of calling you up for those types of engagements right now?
2: Yeah, so I'll say that why this was particularly interesting to me is because when I looked at what was available out there as far as this type of consulting, the big the big consulting companies are doing this, right? So they'll come in, they'll do a million dollar, multi-million dollar oh, yeah. engagement to, to get your professional services to the next level. Um, but there really wasn't a focus for companies that were that, that didn't want to spend that or couldn't spend that. Right. Uh, so what I'm seeing in is really um, some smaller organizations the startups uh, I'm seeing that are looking to either start a professional services or customer success capability or don't know where to go because they reached a point where they have one, but it's not, the margins are so making. So
1: in in the evolution that I always see here is product company starts, has developers, they're making the product. Suddenly customer X asks for some implementation help and some customization. And the developers are doing the professional services. And then suddenly they hire a project manager who's managing the developers. And then, and then Bill comes in, right? Is that kind of what happens? Right?
2: Exactly. Exactly. So, I'm not really sure what utilization is supposed to be i'm not sure what margins is supposed to be but these feel bad, yeah, um, you know, yeah. so it, it's really how do I scale how do I structure that's that those are the things that i'm seeing and the the other place that i'm seeing it is with private equity so private equity that uh, buys up a bunch of different companies and they they've, they've got, got high
1: value but bad operation stuff like they've got a very good product out there, but they just need some help on the operational side, so they they get brought in to kind of. Uh, take it, clean it up, make it more valuable by just running things with with a a better operating system, basically.
2: Exactly, exactly. So I'm helping out both on the the side of before they actually acquire, so due diligence, and then I'm also helping with, hey, how do we actually make this a better, how do we make this better? I mean, private equity, they're there for a short run to to make the company look better, to make some money and then sell it for whatever X. Uh, So my services really help them in understanding, first off, what does this services organization look like? And then second, how do I bring it to the next level or 10 levels from here?
1: This is great. You know, when I was kicking this around and I admit it took me a few extra months because I was trying to figure out what to do and I also have a full-time job, but I I was, I'm glad I'm now I'm going to say go to Bill, but I was originally going to be like, okay, let's put some like a resource center together on a website. And it's sort of like don't send an email with the quote, use a proposal document. Like, right. like, are you doing stuff like that as well, too? Like, let's oh, like walk through, like, how the sausage is made on a deal, and you're like, you're kidding me. Like, I can't <laughs> believe you have business right now. But everybody goes through it. But, you Your know. SOW is in a PowerPoint deck? <laughs> uh, once in a while. I will say once in a while when you've got a – I have done that recently, but it's a very complicated thing. Oh no, it's not the SOW, right? right but like the proposal yeah. is a PowerPoint deck because it's sort of like let's let's deal with, and that's the other thing. Some people just write statements of works and a legal documents. Like no, let's. <laughs> this is like true inside baseball stuff, but like no, never do that because <laughs> you don't want to start getting the lawyers involved every time you're trying to agree on scope. Use a proposal document. Put the logo of the company you're pitching to on the cover. Like into the project. Talk about what you're doing. Talk about how you've done this before make it successful and then you know use whatever things you need to do to get everything agreed and signed off upon then you put it in a statement of work yep.
2: absolutely absolutely and a master services agreement actually is of value and important
1: yeah yeah And then and then you know then the over lawyering of some of these things because the, the attorney uh that is trying to do their best job but they're not used to dealing on services stuff so they start over the like msas and things like that so are you walking in with sort of templatized versions of good msas and sows and getting these people off the ground that way
2: yeah it's one of the biggest things that it, oh, awesome. earlier stage companies that I've, i'm bringing lots of assets to the table right off the bat so yeah those are I'm finding a huge value. So, you know, simple things like kick a kickoff deck. Yeah. Uh, you referred to proposal, right? So, yeah. what 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 does a good version of this look like? So, these yeah. things
1: are just really, really valuable. Oh, hey, go fly to your customer that agreed to pay you some money to do a project. <laughs> like, right. Right. kick it Absolutely. off, right? Absolutely.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. These little things people just don't even think about that yeah. makes such a
1: difference. Yeah, and and I'm being trying to be funny a little bit, but people just don't know until they they do it, right? Like I didn't know these things the first time. Like, and we did a lot of status kickoff calls at Indeco, where it was just a, call, a very bad long call um, for a little bit, and then it's like, oh, this deck is uh, 150 slides. We should probably do that in person now. <laughs>
2: <laughs> right? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny for me now, and I'm helping companies to pick vendors, right, and yeah. provide services, and I just watch some of the behaviors that they, they exhibit. I'm like, that's not the right way to do that. Yeah. It frustrates yeah. me even more, right, because I, I know, and I've been on that side of the table, so that's an yeah. kind of interesting thing for me.
1: Yeah, the, the toughest thing for me in that regard, uh, just the last part of the sales thing is uh, when I'm getting pressure from the uh, staffing team, and I have to use that as an argument back to the the customer slash prospect. I hate even using the term prospect, but hopefully potential customer. But it, it because I can see somebody like you going, oh, here they're trying to do the threat tasks. But I'm like, I literally am in a staffing meeting and they don't know whether to hold these people for the next two weeks or to put them on this other project. And and right. just like laughing your ass off. Like, oh, here's the time when the resources shortages are threatened.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm – been in that mindset and I can tell when people are doing it for sure it's you know it's it's, you just sit there how do you how do you motivate how do you motivate and you see them doing it with the same tactics you've used maybe true or may not I'm not sure but I'll believe it oh
1: man man. you're just trying to help them out but um hey so this was great I I I was gonna get into like some fun stuff but like we already went to an hour and uh I know your phone's probably blowing up and don't want people to fall off here but what's one thing non-work thing that is uh is keeping you going right now that you love doing like oh let's put the laptops down and do x
2: yeah so the thing that i make time for now well first off be my kids but oh obviously. my well, wife beyond, beyond that uh I, I love track driving so i, I uh, take my car to the track and uh i did uh, not know that did you ever do that with alex
1: back in the day
2: no i hadn't started doing it then. i just started doing it a few years ago and uh, oh, wow. it's, it's an absolute blast i I need situations where I'm not thinking about work. Yeah. And it, when you're sitting in a car going as fast as you can around a track, you cannot think about anything but yeah, that.
1: That's amazing. And I'd say the same thing with the guitar. Like, I come home, I'm a metronome on, I'm trying to learn something. And because there's no way you can think about work, it's the same concept. It's just you need something. So even when you're watching TV, Like people are like, hey, do you watch like – you know, this, and I'm like, no, it just reminds me of work. Like, not that there's anything particularly wrong with it. I'm like, I just need a break to detach from it and stuff like right, that. Right, right. I mean,
2: I find it funny. I do highly stressful things to find uh, <laughs> find find relaxation from work. Um, but I guess that's my personality. Yeah, <laughs> like
1: skydiving, right? Like, some people do that. And I'm like, oh, my God. But, uh, oh, that's great. So, Bill, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop the recording. And this was fantastic. I'm sure we'll do a follow-up on some, some stuff you bumped into along the way with your new gig as well, too. And uh, it was great chatting with you.
2: Great chat with you, Jeff.
1: All right.